Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. These two chapters have a simple set of plot points. Rochester and Jane talk a few times. Rochester tells Jane where Adele comes from, admitting some sins in the process of her procurement. Jane notices that Rochester's bed has been set on fire and saves him. Jane and Rochester fall in love. I will slow that down now. In chapter 14, Rochester and Jane begin to talk. For a good amount of time, they don't see each other very much. He is in and out doing business now that his ankle is better. But one night, he summons her and Adele. Adele's present has finally arrived. Part of it is a dress, and as she goes off to try it on, Jane and Rochester talk. You examine me, Miss Eyre. Do you think me handsome? No, sir, she replies. Rochester begins confessing to Jane, but the confessions are in riddles. He wants to make a, quote, retransformation from Indian rubber back to flesh, a comment which makes Jane think he's had too much wine. He demands that she speak. She refuses, which delights him. Finally, she says that she is willing to amuse him, but only if he finds the topic. A deal is struck. They read each other, their faces, the structures of one another's heads, their characters. There is attraction and mutual understanding and some confusion, too. It's in this scene, I believe, that Rochester decides that he's going to marry Jane. He says, this moment, I am paving hell with energy. I am laying down good intentions, which I believe durable as flint. My associates and pursuits shall be better than they have been. He, in short, is going to make Jane his associate. He knows what his aim is, and he will change laws if he has to, to get them. Adele then comes in to show off her dress, Rochester tells us that Adele, in this dress that he has bought for her, has transformed into Celine Varenne. Chapter 15 starts with the story of said Celine Varenne. It turns out that Celine is Adele's mother, who Rochester thought that he was in love with. She was a Parisian opera singer, which was synonymous with loose woman at the time. Rochester caught her cheating on him and shot the man who cuckolded him in the shoulder. Celine eventually reached out that she had had Rochester's child. Rochester does not believe that Adele is his, but took her in anyway. 
Jane loves Adele more for having been abandoned and unloved by Rochester. Here is Claudia Nelson, who you've heard previously talk about Jane's role as an orphan, on Adele. Adele is a really interesting case because she gets to have the curly hair and the fancy toys and all those things, but she doesn't get to have the love either, even though she quite possibly is Rochester's biological daughter. Or if she's not, she could be, so he has to take responsibility for her anyway. But I don't know, I think the interesting thing there is that even though Rochester doesn't love her, he does take responsibility for her and he treats her in a way as a kind of pet. He will bring her back gifts. He doesn't expect work. He doesn't expect that she be a good Christian girl and properly grateful and so forth. Uh, Everybody refers to Adele as a little monkey or, you know, some kind of little non-human thing. And does Rochester think of her as his daughter? No. But Jane ultimately kind of does or thinks of her anyway as a stepdaughter to whom she has responsibilities. It is after his admission of past transgressions and having no love for Adele that Jane begins to fall in love with Rochester. Obviously. She is, quote, so happy and so gratified with this new interest added to her life that she ceased to pine after kindred. She doesn't need family anymore. She has Rochester. He becomes the face she best likes to see, more cheering than a fire. Then, in my opinion, the first truly sexy scene in the novel happens. Jane wakes up one night to a sound. She thinks that Pilot is wandering around, but opens the door to check. She hears a strange laugh and runs down the hall because a fire is burning. Rochester is passed out in his bed as flames burn around him. Jane douses the bed and gets Rochester out alive. He asks Jane what she thinks happened, and she said that she heard Grace Poole laugh and that Grace probably did it. He agrees and tells Jane to tell no one what happened. He will account for the damage. He then takes her hand and says, You have saved my life. I have a pleasure in owing you so immense a debt. I feel your benefits no burden. My cherished preserver, good night. Jane then tries to exit, but he can't get himself to let go of her hand. She extricates it and runs back to her room, though she is unable to sleep. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, a lot happens in these two chapters. What context do you think we need? So let's focus on Celine for a moment. Celine Varen, who we learn has been Rochester's paramour, who he met as she was singing opera and dancing. So Paris at this time was exploding with population. It was one of many newly industrialized cities and people were flocking to them for work. And the people who were getting work, of course, were men. And the people who were underemployed and living 
a life of great instability with very, very few options for women. Women could either do incredibly underpaid service work or they could find a man to either partner with or who might give them money in return for certain pleasures. And the place that this happened outside of brothels, perhaps most significantly, was the opera. So every time you look at a Degas painting, know this. The dancers in the painting were not just beautiful girls in tutus. They may have been beautiful girls in tutus, but they were often poor girls who were brought to dance at the opera and who were lined up for the favors of the wealthy subscribers at the opera. In writing from the day, for example, in the memoirs of a writer named Louis Veron, who was one of the directors of Paris Opera in the 19th century, he wrote, attending the opera was fashionable, keeping a ballet girl even more so. So this was a place where men like Rochester would go to find women who they could set up in apartments with carriages and cashmere and diamonds. It was expected. And these were women who had reputations for being lascivious. And yet most of them were born into poverty and had almost no options to get out of it. And so, you know, Rochester is horrified that the woman he is keeping might actually have feelings for someone else and might have just curried favor with him so that she could have a home, so that she could have clothing, etc. But that was probably what she had as her only option in the world. And of course, as we've mentioned before, this writing comes up around the time of Marx, around the time of really thinking about what it would mean to empower workers and the amount of humiliation and degradation and struggle that it takes to not be born wealthy and to need to work for a living. And I think that Celine fits completely within that, even if Rochester is unwilling to see it because he's so blinded by his own desire and jealousy. Yeah, I, I'm very confused by what the text wants us to think about Celine. I think that the text is trying to do double duty here of it wants us to feel for Rochester, that he thought he really loved her and that he felt betrayed by her. And yet I, and maybe this is just because I'm a reader of 2021, I don't judge Celine, right? Like it's very clear to me that she's financially dependent on him and that when he leaves her, it's really cruel and that he then shoots this man in the shoulder, right? So I'm wondering what you think about that. Is it my modern reading of the scene that allows me to see how complicated this is? Or do you think Charlotte Bronte is simultaneously trying to show us, look, Rochester isn't all bad. He had his reasons, but also Celine was put in a difficult situation. I feel like it's how Bronte is introducing us to Rochester as a man of great passion. I mean, he even refers to this as his grand passion, right? You know, as someone who's capable of incredible feeling, incredible commitment, incredible love, which has simply been misplaced. I do think, though, that our way of seeing that is she creates this really unfortunate Madonna horror dichotomy that I feel like Jane herself would struggle with. But there is this notion that we have pure Jane and we have the whore of Paris, you know, 
France at the time and continues to be, I would say, is synonymous with sexual licentiousness and a taste for finer things that may be unearned and just a whole type of sort of snobbery and dandery. And I think that that is something that Bronte's buying into here a bit. I mean, she's throwing crazy French shade all over this book. Oh, yeah. I also think, you know, this is a book that is published during the moralism of the Victorian era. And it's not like she does the extra work to make us feel what Celine's position might be, which honestly probably wasn't all that different than Jane's. She just didn't have low wood. She didn't have the opportunity to be a governess. She had a different talent. You know, she had the talent to sing and dance and seduce and be what she needed to be in 19th century France. And so I actually struggle with it. I feel like this is one of the things about the book that I get really frustrated with is this was a poor sex worker who clearly was not into Rochester for anything except for what she needed from him. I mean, Rochester is someone who even Jane, who's in love with him, doesn't think is handsome. And yet Celine has told him that he's more gorgeous than Apollo. I mean, obviously that's a line. And if Rochester chooses to buy it, that's on him. Yeah, the thing that complicates all this for me is that Jane and Rochester have this conversation that he says, you know, I hope you don't mistake my informality for insolence. And she says, I could never do that. One I rather like, informality I rather like, and the other, insolence. Nothing freeborn should ever submit to, even for a salary. And Rochester says, no, no, like people will do anything for a salary. And it's so interesting to me, right, that the person with wealth and power understands that is like there is a desperation that people do anything for a salary. And the poor girl is like, no, I have morals. And I feel like he is showing that he understands why Celine did what she did. Right. Like people will do anything for a salary. And like that to me shows some sort of empathy and understanding on his part. He's thought about this and seen it to some extent from Celine's point of view. Well, I think he's also felt it from his own point of view, right? We've already heard that he has had a relationship with his own family that has required him to live in a certain way related to the family fortune that he found unconscionable. I don't know how much he sees it in Celine, though. I think that the yeah. way that he describes his relationship with Celine is still so broken in heartbreak and jealousy that he refuses to see her as a courtesan. He still feels like he is a wronged man. Even if he is a fool, he's a fool not because he misjudged a business venture, but because he fell in love with someone who cuckolded him and didn't love him back. I'm wondering what you make of the fact that he shoots her paramour. Are we supposed to feel threatened by that, that he is a man capable of violence? It's sort of a throwaway moment. He's like, I told him to meet me at dawn in this park and we met and I lodged a bullet in his shoulder. <laughs> I love it. It's such an aside. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you super shot someone, dude. But it's funny because we've already heard from Miss Fairfax that there are very violent people, these Rochesters, right. and we haven't learned what that means yet. And maybe she knows this. But there's this other type of violence that he uses against Celine, which is he 
pulls the plug on his funding of her life, which isn't just the cashmere and the diamonds. It's her shelter. It's her food. It's all of her stability. And here she is, a woman with a child. You know, he says that he rescues Adele from the slime and mud of Paris, that Celine is destitute. Well, she's destitute because he was responsible for her stability. It's not like she could go on welfare. It's not like she could go to a shelter. And so, yes, on the one hand, he duels at dawn with the other cowboy and the lovers left with, you know, a bum shoulder, I imagined, after their shootout. But what Celine is left with is so much worse. She's left with nothing. Yeah, it, he says, right, like I gave her such money as was necessary for her, right? Like he gives her some closing sum of money, but you're absolutely left to believe that it isn't enough. It isn't much, right? And that we know from other contemporaneous stories like Les Miserables, right? Like one piece of misfortune, one man leaving a woman can change the course of her life and make her completely destitute. And again, I feel like that's a foil for what we're going to see Rochester do with Jane later, which is when the two of them have this big fight and potential ending of their relationship. He's like, I will give you everything you want. Like, what do you want? Take it all. And so, yeah, I think that you're right about this Madonna whore comparison that Jane, when she is going to frustrate or betray Rochester, it's going to be from a place of purity. And therefore, he's going to be able to treat her in a totally different way than he treated Celine. And this is part of why Jane frustrates me so much, because she owns that purity, right? She's saying, I would never submit to anything that feels so problematic. And it just feels like, right, of course you wouldn't, Jane. You haven't had to. You found other ways. But not everyone has that capability. And there's just something that feels so self-righteous about it and so naive at the same time, right? She's the 18-year-old who hasn't seen the world yet, but who's making pronouncements about how pure she would be within it. And I love that he takes that down a notch. But then again, it is her purity that he falls in love with. And that it's her purity that he thinks will save him. And that is in part why I find this romance so troubling. So there are two things I want to say about that. One is that I think Jane, by the end of the book, implicates herself as not being as pure as 18-year-old Jane thinks she will always be, right? We know that Jane Eyre writes us from the perspective of a 30-something-year-old. And she confesses to us she does something that 18-year-old Jane would be shocked by at the end of the novel. And so I think we're invited to judge Jane for this, for being like, you are completely naive and like... Yes, you were abused, but you also are a woman of tremendous privilege, right? And Rochester, I think, beautifully calls her out on it, right? He's like, absolutely not. I've seen the world. And yet I totally agree with you that it is at least in part her purity and her naivete and her youth that makes her so attractive to him. He's like, that's who I could have been if I hadn't been sullied by the world. I could be that good and think that well of the world, too. Lauren, I'm wondering if you agree with me that it is like super early in their relationship and conversation that he looks at her and is like, I'm going to marry you. And it's at such a weird moment. So Jane is like, to speak truth, sir, I don't understand you at all. I cannot keep up this conversation. It is out of my depth. And then she says, 
I know one thing, you're saying that you weren't as good as you would have liked to be and that you regret your own imperfection and you have a sullied memory, which is like always bothering you. So it seems to me that you can try hard and you would find it possible again to be good, to be something that you would approve of, to not not hate yourself. And that's it. Like then he says, I know what my aim is, what my motives are. And at this moment, I pass a law. And that law is he's like, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to marry you. And it's just like, it's so early and it's so weird. Right. But he's already decided that she's going to save him. And he has said, you know, when I first saw you, I knew that there was this thing about you and I see your purity and I see your goodness and I hate myself for being so wrecked and bad and old. And it is you, Jane, who is going to transform me. And so it's like he's already decided that she is his salvation. And mm-hmm. it it isn't something that is going to be based in behavior or attraction or anything like that. It is the fact that she is what he believes is this untouched, unsullied goodness that he's made this decision. And it almost feels like after that is when they begin falling in love. And yet, even if I'm frustrated with it, I feel Jane's desire build through it, even though she may push back, even though I may find him infuriating. He is a different version of that mad, bad and dangerous guy. And I think that It's something that gets complicated around the question of desire here. You know, we've been talking about these two different themes of desire and power and how they keep getting woven tighter and tighter and tighter together. This to me is the chapter where they become inseparable because I think that she does desire his power. And I think that it is difficult to fully separate sex from power. He bemoans the fact that they're not equals. He says, you know, if I hadn't lived this life that I've lived, if I was still my 18-year-old pure self, Jane, we would be equals. But do we want them to be equals? Do we want the two of them both to be pure and reticent? Or do we want him to be throwing down the way that he is? Do we want to know that he's the man who would, you know, shoot Celine Varenne's lover, that he would take a lover in Paris to begin with, that he's someone who feels so much passion, so much jealousy, and now so much certitude about Jane? I don't love that he's into Jane because he thinks that Jane will save him. That makes me want to tell her to run for the hills. But I do love that he's saying this sweet, fresh pleasure that you haven't had yet, Jane, how do you know you don't like it? You're going to find out pretty soon that you do. And there's something exciting about that to me, I got to admit. Not only that, I totally understand why he's exciting to her. She has none of this freedom. He's just gone around Europe and slept with who he wants to and shot someone at dawn. She's been pacing the second floor, looking out at the window, being like, I wish I could do anything. And so she can't, right? If she did anything like this, she would be ruined like Celine. This is a cautionary tale for her. She has to stay the straight and narrow path of using her education in order to barter to be safe enough as a governess. 
And so, yeah, like how else is she going to get any of these adventures? She can get in bed with a man who can tell her these stories. Right. And like look up at him and be like, what was that like? And these aren't stories that she's going to get anywhere else. Bessie maybe told her a version of them. And so I just totally get why she's attracted to him. It's tell me about your trips. Like I can't go around the world, but I can listen to you. But there's also this other element of Jane, which, of course, we saw when she was younger, when she did have Bessie telling her those stories, which is the sort of passion that is so quiet in these chapters, but we see so present in Rochester. It almost feels like he is this mirror of Jane's deeper repressed self. You know, Jane was someone who had a tendency to violence. Jane is someone who felt incredible jealousy and incredible loss. When she did, those were the moments that I loved her the most in this like Quaker dressed, pale and quiet Jane. I want to take her out drinking, but we do know that there are these parts parts of her that are really, really deep that match him. And that it's not just that he would be her equal by being this quiet, pure person, but that she is his equal in terms of having this depth of feeling and passion. Right. And that the only difference is that he's free to express it. And that maybe in their relationship, she would be free to express it because he would understand those responses in her. She's been trained over the last 10 years to repress all of that. And with him, she could say, I want to shoot her at dawn. And it wouldn't scare him because he'd be like, yeah, I totally get that feeling. It feels like he's undoing what Lowood did to her in these pages in some way. It feels like what she has been taught is what life could and should be. He's turning on its head and that's what she's been craving all along. The other thing that he does is see her weirdness. He summons her paintings portfolio in order to show his guests, right? He loves her purity, but also those paintings are not pure. They are peculiar and passionate and literary. And he's like, look at how cool and weird this chick is, right? So I think he makes the decision based on purity is like you would be like medicinally good for me. You would be like a marriage cure for me. But he says, right, like, oh, you're stubborn and he likes it. So I think, yes, it's her purity, but also her fire. But let's also remember for a moment, not that we ever forget this, that this is a 40 year old employer. And in many ways, he is overstepping a bound as an employer, which is far more problematic than anything that he did with a French courtesan who was clearly in a business arrangement with him. I, I just think that if ever there's a moment to at least begin to talk about the fact that Jane is the virginal nanny who he has hired to educate his possible illegitimate daughter. And now he is seducing her and saying, I will have the fresh, sweet pleasure of your body and your hand in marriage. But I think, you know, there's also just a fairy tale aspect of this, right? Like she's the poor servant and he's the prince. He's also the boss. But if I imagine myself in the 1830s, I just like can't imagine anything sexier than my boss falling in love with me. I like know it's so problematic and I just like totally get it. 
And Lauren, while we're talking about the potential of Rochester being a total creep, he dresses up his maybe daughter in a dress that makes her look like a little courtesan. She goes to try on the dress and Rochester says to Jane, look, when Adele comes back in this room, she is going to have a dress on that makes her look just like her mother. What is that to dress up a child in an outfit that like a courtesan ex-girlfriend would look like? It's so weird. Girl, it is so weird. (laughs) I mean, it just feels like what is Bronte saying here about the French and also about Rochester's relationship to not just the whores on the Madonna whore spectrum of the world, but what does it mean to try to create one? Is that what he's doing? What is this? I mean, he's not insofar as like he's trying to give her an English governess, right? Like he's trying to Britishize her. But he also just like, it just feels cruel. Like he's mocking her. He's like, you're going to love this dress and you're going to love this dress because you're your mother's daughter. And I can try to English you all I want, but at your core, you're always going to be right. Like a little slut. Like it's just the creepy, creepy shit that middle-aged men do when they resent that they are attracted to young women. Ugh. Or... Or is this actually just sort of something great about Rochester, where no matter how much he plays the sort of gruff, dismissive pseudo father, he knows what Adele wants. And he knows that like so many girls, Adele's age, she wants the sparkly tutu and she wants to rip it out of the box and twirl around in it. And that this is just something that will bring her incredible joy. And so he dismisses it. But really, all he wants to do is make Adele happy. Oh, we just had a Freaky Friday moment. I love it. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of evidence to your point, right? He's like, I'm not going to be able to tell her she looks cute in this dress. So let's get Mrs. Fairfax in here because Mrs. Fairfax will tell her she looks cute in the dress. And that's what Adele wants right now. I just think that there's always going to be this tension with Rochester where he has these really strange relationships with women, these complicated relationships with women. And you're like, are his intentions actually really progressive and wonderful for their time? Or are they like twisted and weird? And I mean, the answer, of course, of course, has to be both because to your point, like power and desire are inextricably linked at this point. He wants Jane because he loves her and also because she purifies him. And he is kind to Adele because he's kind, but is also kind to her in a slightly twisted way. And he employs Mrs. Fairfax and like invites her in for tea because she's a relative, but also like he doesn't like her. Like There's something about like his absolute power over these women means that he, even though he tries to be good, his desires of contempt can just always play themselves out. And I think that Bronte, whether she meant to or not, is delivering some of this ambiguity. There is so much description in this book. And yet these scenes with Rochester, they're just written like a script, right? There's there's no detail around the dialogue. We don't learn that he speaks to Adele with a smile or a glint in his eye. You know, we never know if these lines are being performed in an ironic way or a gruff way. 
we, we lose the sort of characterization that would let us know where he's positioned in terms of any of this. And I actually wonder if there's an element of these scenes that invite all of these adaptations, especially on screen, because they can be played all of these different ways. I mean, yes, this is this massive seminal love story that has shaped us, but Part of why it shapes us is because it keeps getting interpreted and reinterpreted because you could play Rochester as someone who's really cold and gruff, or you could play him as someone who is always saying things with a smirk and flirting and that there's a way that he expresses affection by saying, oh, don't bother me with your pleasure. Bring Miss Fairfax into it and is smiling at them, loving opening this box in the corner. Maybe he has no interest at all. Bronte never tells us, and I don't know why she chooses not to. It's like it's like there's just a transcript of these dialogues after we've had so much rich detail from her. Lauren, I'm wondering the extent to which you think that she thinks she has told us all that we need to know with, again, this physiognomy stuff, right? She tells us in this chapter that he lifts his hair and she says he showed a solid enough mass of intellectual organs with an abrupt deficiency where the sign of benevolence would have risen, right? So this physiognomy stuff that you pointed us to now that you have, I'm just like, holy shit. Like she is relying on this science that leads to eugenics to do so much of this descriptive work for us. She's described his forehead. We're supposed to know based on our physiognomy books that we have at home, what that means. And like, that's supposed to give us the reading. I think you're making a really good point there. And it's a point that really makes me uncomfortable. Not that you're making it, but what you're saying feels like, oh, right. One wouldn't have to describe all these behaviors if one has already described a forehead and that forehead is supposed to tell us everything that we're supposed to know about a person. That's so messed up. <laughs> Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So we have to talk about the fire. <laughs> oh, the fire. 
I mean, the only thing I want to talk about the fire, because we don't want to spoil things about it, but obviously we can talk about more, is how sexy this scene is. They are soaking wet. She's just saved his life. He's holding her hand and like can't let it go. She wants him to let her go, but also doesn't want him to let her go. She's like overwhelmed by this whole situation. She she is the hero and he is the damsel in distress. I just like, I freaking love this mini scene. I love it. Again, she's a hero and he's the damsel in distress. It's how we meet him. It happens here. And it follows this whole scene in which he says, I'm going to marry you because you're going to save me. You know, and as a reader, I'm reading it like, oh, my God, get over it. Enough with this salvation narrative. And then lo and behold, she saves him. I mean, there's all the evidence you need. There's all the evidence, at least, that he needs. It's like this whole episode has proven his intentions, you know, and he's literally been set on fire. He's already said that he's paving his way to hell with these intentions. Here he is finding himself in hell and also finding himself asleep in such a metaphor, right? The bed is burning. So is the bed burning? because the bed represents the flames of Hades? Is the bed burning because he can't contain the passion in his own body? Or is the bed burning the way that we would think about it in the 1980s after a certain Farrah Fawcett movie called The Burning Bed, where when a woman is wronged, a woman will set her husband's bed on fire? I mean, and then, of course, if we're reading it in this previous definitions of like the bed being this place of passion, Jane comes in and douses it. (laughs) She's like, no more passion here. Let's throw some water on this. (laughs) But that even when like she throws this cold water on him, there's still no pun intended, but like there's still heat between them. Right. Just I mean, like this conversation at the end, like. I'm glad I happened to be awake, I said, and then I was going. What? You will go? I am cold, sir. Cold? Yes. You're standing in a pool. Go. But like he can't let go. And it's only the threat that like Mrs. Fairfax might come that he lets her go. But of course, also, it's creepy that he won't let her go. She has to lie to him to get out of his arms. I don't know. (laughs) I just why do I like this so much, Lauren? So Bronte has this one short sentence that she sets off as its own paragraph, which is strange energy was in his voice, strange fire in his look. I mean, how do you not like that? What does any red-blooded human want other than strange energy in a voice and strange fire in a look? That is the stuff. And so that's what we read right before she's standing in her cold pool. And you know, he is just going to heat that up, girl. What can I tell you? Uh, You're such a good friend. Thank you for justifying this for me. And yet, and yet. Uh, I knew you weren't (laughs) going to let me end happy. I knew it. She cannot free her hand. And there is something that feels stricken about him. There is something that feels deeply uncomfortable about this. And so I feel like Bronte is giving us all of these mixed messages here. This is a deeply physically uncomfortable situation. This is an awkward situation. This is a situation which is filled with fear and danger in incredibly unsexy ways. And yet there's this thing about him. I mean, the other thing that I do love is 
he means to let go when she says I'm cold, right? He's like cold. Yes. Standing in a pool. Go then. Right. He like doesn't like the idea that she's cold and he still can't get himself to let go of her, which we do have to give him some credit. He's traumatized. He just almost died. Right. And was like woken up being doused by water, having passed out from smoke inhalation. I think we can give him some leeway here for not being able to let go. But he does seem concerned for her. I don't know. Listen, I get falling for Rochester. Rochester, to me, is smart. He has a certain charisma to him. He sees Jane and values her in ways that after being jettisoned, discarded, you know, left in the slag heap of humanity in so many ways. I mean, how incredible to say you look like you're just a governess, but you have this thing to you that you would not find in the raw power of 3000 governesses. The fact that he finds her so special is so extraordinary, but it also feels like the only thing that he values about her specialness is how it will save him. And that's a narrative that I just I'm not going to get with. I don't know. Isn't it to some extent true at the beginning of relationships where you're you're projecting all sorts of things onto the other person and then you sort of figure out whether or not you can actually live with them? Absolutely. It's just in this situation, everything about Jane and her relationship to Rochester is in service to him. She listens to him. She flirts with him. She saves his life. She educates his paramour's child. What is Jane getting here? Jane is making her salary. Jane still is gaining what a governess gains. And there's some thrill and titillation from flirting with your boss. But what is Jane getting? Is Jane getting saved? Yes. She doesn't even need kindred anymore. She doesn't need family anymore. She gets to look upon the face that gives her more pleasure than anything in the world. This was a job before, right? But a place that she felt totally trapped. And now it is a home that she's excited to be in just because he's there. I think that, I mean, that line of like, I no longer cared that I didn't have a family. This man just made me so happy. Why don't you want that for Jane? Well, I think that we'll find out. And I do think that Bronte's done a really great job of letting us feel what it will mean to have not searched for other kindred and to have put all one's eggs in one professional and romantic basket. Yeah. But lest I get ahead of myself. So next week, Lauren, chapters 16 through 18, what are you excited about? Well, I'm excited to delve a little bit more into the mystery of the burning bed and also to see what happens when this little bubble of people in Thornfield, this pod, so to speak, becomes broader and there are guests invited. Who will Rochester be when it's not just him and Jane? Yeah. And this is the beginning of his strategy to make it true that she will marry him. And so we are going to start seeing his strategy. And man, oh man, is it a strange strategy. (laughs) It is just not as the crow flies.
So physiognomy keeps coming up, this way of understanding characters, Rochester especially at this point, by the shape of his brow and more, these details that seem to communicate a lot about these characters. But, you know, it's feeling like a very curious science to me. And as we've discussed, certainly a problematic one. And we wanted to talk to someone who knows far more, not just about physiognomy, but also about physiognomy within English literature, within the literature of the Victorian age. And there happens to be a professor at Dartmouth in the English department who studies the intersection of narrative and Victorian scientific culture who has studied just this named Christy Harner. So let's get her on the phone. Hi, Christy. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. We're so excited to be talking to you to have this opportunity. And I just want to dive right in. You know, I know you've written about physiognomy in literature and specifically how it's used to communicate both cross-class sympathy and also anxiety. And those two themes feel so present in what we're looking into here. Can you tell us a little more about the sciences to start with? Perhaps tell us about the difference between phrenology and physiognomy and how they were hands-on sciences? Absolutely. So physiognomy really has an ancient origin. So it was being used by the ancient Greeks and Romans, but it was repopularized in Europe by Johann Kasper Lavate in the 1770s. So his essays on physiognomy was translated into English, went through multiple translations in the 19th century before it fell out of favor. Physiognomy is focused primarily on facial features Broadly speaking, chins, noses, foreheads, eye shape, that type of thing. Phrenology was quote unquote invented in the 1790s by Francis Gall and then popularized by George Combe in the early 19th century. Phrenology is focused on the bumps of the head. So if you've ever seen one of those old fashioned skulls that have all of these regions marked out, That's a phrenological cast. And the number of regions, or they were called faculties, changed over the course of the 19th century. They kept adding some in and taking some out as they refined the science. But the idea of that was that you could pinpoint basically bumps or recesses on the skull to identify character. Everything from benevolence, which comes up in Jane Eyre and conscientiousness, to love of children, which was right at the back of the neck. So if I had a bump at the back of my neck, did that predispose me to love or hate children? So the bump is that you were good with children. (laughs) What's really interesting about physiognomy and phrenology, and this is part of the reason for the anxieties behind them, is that physiognomy was predisposed more towards innate traits. So the idea that you had characteristics that you really couldn't change. And we see a lot in this chapter about Rochester's nature. And by nature, he was a better man. By nature, he was as good as Jane. Phrenology was actually pitched to the middle classes as a way of knowing your character so as to change it if need be. And so one of the texts from the 1840s that I always found funny was 
one that coached mothers in how to train their children based on the phrenological traits that they had. So, oh, you've got a lot of X. Well, we can do something about that. Did Bronte believe in these sciences? It's always hard to say what people believed in, but she was certainly interested in them. So in 1851, in June 1851, Bronte went with her publisher, George Smith, in London to a phrenologist named Dr. Brown. They posed as a brother and sister pair, the Mr. and Miss Fraser, which is hilarious because they would have had very different accents. I don't know who would have believed that they were actually siblings. But she had her phrenological reading done. The copy has survived. We have copies of the printed off version that we got. And it's interesting in its, I don't know, surprising accuracies, Bronte would have been happy with it. It described her as intellectual, poetical, and said that she possessed a fine organ of language. Fascinating. It's interesting to me because Bronte at times gives us so much description through scenes, so much description within dialogue of manner, of tone, of behaviors. In this chapter and in other scenes with Rochester, she gives us so little. And it feels like there's so many ways that things could be interpreted by a reader. I wonder if it feels like she's letting the physiognomy do some of the work of the description, that readers would know how someone with these features would be approaching this sort of scene. I think that's part of it, although even there, the specificity isn't extensive. We get a few very specific phrenological references to benevolence and to conscience, but not enough to really add up to anything. At various points in the 19th century, there were the number of phrenological faculties generally numbered in the 30s. So we're getting a very partial picture of Rochester here. I think what's interesting is that it's, to me, this feels very characteristic of 19th century text around phrenology and physiognomy in the sense that it's a discussion. And part of the complexity of these, the status of these sciences in the moment is that people were heavily debating them. So texts that tend to include them, even texts that claim to be proponents or to claim to reject them, they tend to stage a kind of debate or a conversation about their status. And that's exactly what Bronte is doing here, is giving us a conversation in which these two characters negotiate their relationship to, to these sciences, but also to what they represent. You know, is it innate identity? Is it Rochester's experiences that make him different? Is Jane just quiet because of Lowood and the experiences she's had, or is that part of her innate character? And the fact that they're having a conversation about it is really important for the status of the sciences in that period. But I think it's also really important for how we perceive the relationship between the two of them, because it is a dialogue and neither one of them has the upper hand consistently in that dialogue. It goes back and forth between the two of them. Within this debate at the time, was there any sort of concern for the racialized or class-based critique that would come up in these sort of discussions about the people who were being analyzed? Absolutely. I'll talk to the class aspect first, because that was more 
prominent in the debates. There were a, a lot of debates about the slipperiness of class identity, particularly in this moment when people, the middle classes are coming into a more consolidated form. And certainly figures like Jane as a governess occupies, and I know you've talked about this already in the podcast, such a liminal class position in that she's educated, but she's an employee. And where does she sit? Where does Mrs. Fairfax sit? Similarly. So there's there's a lot of conversation about that. There's a lot of suggestion in two different directions about the relationship between employers and employees. There's a suggestion that employers should have the right to do phrenological tests basically as character references on people that they want to hire. There are guides on how to hire servants based on their phrenology and physiognomy that are getting published. But on the other hand, there's a lot of critiques of that, saying that employers can't take that liberty, that that's stereotypical, that it's biased, that it's going to create more of a class divide, that it doesn't allow for the recognition of natural traits. The racial version of it is is more complicated because so many of the early texts left out race entirely. They weren't concerned with people who weren't white, who weren't part of the everyday traffic of most parts of the UK in this period, which were very, very white in this period. The assumption generally was when race was included in these texts, that people who weren't white didn't even fall into the same categories, which was extreme dehumanizing, of course, because they couldn't even really be analyzed in the same way. I think there's such a temptation to think of Bronte as writing this spectacularly progressive book for some feminists or to say this is just a relic of colonial empire, of a past that we need to put behind us. And I'm constantly finding everything to be so much more complicated than that in this text. How do you approach that in terms of a relationship to these sciences? Because it's making me want to throttle her and it's making me feel like this is one of the most problematic and perhaps least discussed elements of this book that I've encountered. My general approach to the novel is that it is, it's both. <laughs> it's both incredibly problematic and incredibly progressive at the same time. And I think those two things are in some ways inextricable from each other. I don't think it's fair to try to put the novel in one category or the other in the same way that I don't think it's fair to put anyone today into one category or the other. It's often messier than we want it to be. I think in this particular scene, Bronte is claiming an equal authority for Jane as a woman and as a member of the lower classes. And she is just as eligible and capable of reading Rochester as he is of reading her. And so that I think is progressive because so often these sciences were in the hands of men. Anyone, of course, who was a professional phrenologist would have been a man. And in most of Bronte's other novels, because phrenology comes up in all of them, In most of the other novels, the person doing the phrenological reading is male. In Villette, which is from 1853, there's this really famous scene where Monsieur Paul reads Lucy Snow to decide whether or not she can get a job. It's, it's very much a power play in that moment. 
here it's not. There's a, a sense of, I don't know if equality is exactly the right word, but at least dialogism back and forth between the two of them that feels really important. And the upper class pretensions of other characters, like the Ingrams, Lady Ingram is incorrect, as I've already said in her reading of Jane. Blanche is also incorrect. She directly uses phrenological terms in the gypsy scene and gets it wrong. So there's there's definitely a come down for the, for the more aristocratic people. That doesn't, however, address race. Christy, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was really fun. You've been listening to On Air. We are a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to us. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Molly Baxter. And we are distributed by Acast. This week, we'd like to thank Christy Harner and Claudia Nelson for talking to us, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Laura Glass, Emma Smith, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Thanks. We'll talk to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.